Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Uh, <clears throat> I'm glad you're here. Uh, kiddos, we have Elevate this morning. If you want to head that way, you can. And everybody else, we're going to hang in here and continue on in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and uh, and and we soccer now. Did you guys know we soccer now? We soccer. We are undefeated as a city ever in the history of MLS. We have never lost. I mean, we've always won. We don't even know how to deal with failure yet. All right. Uh, no, but my favorite play was where the guy from St. Louis gives us the ball and we score in our, and we score. Uh, that was pretty, and nobody, anybody else watched the game? I, I watched my first one. That was, all right. All right. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Um, again, we're going to be uh, in Sermon on the Mount this morning and, and for a while. Um, my goal was to get through four Beatitudes uh, uh, this morning, and we're going to get through three. Uh, several years ago, I uh, borrowed the Star Wars series from somebody, and I was going to show my son the first three. Not the original three, the first three. Right? Those who have ears. Is that right? Am I saying it right? The first set of the trilogy. Uh, I, I, yeah, not the good ones. Um, the second ones. And I borrowed them from one of you people. And, uh, and we were watching it. And um, I was watching it with my son. Obviously, this was when he was a little bit younger. And he always used to ask a lot of questions when we would watch movies and trying to figure out the plot. And he still does, but when he was younger, he would ask a lot of questions. And in the third movie, uh, I was just waiting for Yoda to fight with swords. That's the third movie, right? Okay, bear with me. Uh, and he's, he started asking, he was like, there's this extended battle scene and everybody, and lasers everywhere and everybody was shooting. And he's like, Dad, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? And I, I was tired. Uh, I didn't know what was going on at this point. And I said, you're going to have to ask one of the guys from church. <laughs> because I don't know. I think it was, uh, yeah, Revenge of Hogwarts. Is that the... All right. So today, it was, it was sus. Jeremy, I, I was going to use that joke this morning. All right. I'll cover over it and you won't even know. All right. That's right. All right. Uh, so today, after two weeks of introduction, um, we're finally getting to the Beatitudes, or the actual beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, Jesus bursts onto the scene with this profound announcement, the arrival of the kingdom, and immediately what he does is we have this list, is that me? Good? All right. Immediately we have this list of kind of the, uh, it's... Um, 
of, of kind of the, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And we, this list that we are really, 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 really familiar with. If you grew up in church, if you grew up even near a church, you've probably heard this list of, of, uh, of attributes. And um, Matthew focuses on, on the good guys exclusively. He'll get to some woes later on. But he, at Luke, when Luke gives this first account, he gives those who are blessed, and then he gives a list of those who are cursed. So he kind of gives the list of both the good and the bad. And so today we're going to bust into this list. And what does it mean? What does it not mean? Um, and uh, I bet a lot of people hear this list and go, okay, am, is this me? Uh, am, I, where do, where, do I, am I on this list? Am I a good guy or am I a bad guy? Uh, and this list has uh, some promises with it that, that have been interpreted in lots of ways. Uh, so we're going to just dive in and kind of bust this open. And today is going to be kind of uh, definitions of what is Jesus saying here. But I do hope that it will be helpful and meaningful, and we're going to go through this uh, one at a time. Uh, but the first thing I want us to actually see is from last week. Last week we talked about these seven attributes of the reign of God that Isaiah brings to light that we're going to see throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount, God's presence, God's healing, God's joy, uh, and uh, his return, his call to uh, return, his rescue. Isaiah prophesies that God's reign will ensue with the announcement of God's presence and of joy and of hope. And what he says in Isaiah, that the one who comes to bring this will bring hope and good news for the poor, for the hurting, and for the oppressed. And this is what Jesus does. And so if you're if you are a religious leader in this day and you're well-versed in the book of Isaiah, you're hearing this guy talk and probably a lot of what you're thinking if, in your mind, if not saying out loud, is who does this guy think he is? Which is a good question. In Luke chapter 4, I'll let you read Luke chapter 4, but Luke chapter 4 is pretty interesting. Jesus, this blows my mind. Jesus goes to a synagogue in his hometown in Nazareth. And he walks in the synagogue and he, he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah. And this is before the printing press, so they didn't have it all nice and bound and everything like that. It was a scroll and they didn't have numbers, so he's probably having to search through that. And he reads Isaiah 6, 1 through 4, out loud, 61. There you go, thank you, yeah. See, I'm training you. It's just subversive training. All right, but he reads Isaiah 61, 1 through 4, and he reads it out loud. And then he rolls the scroll up and he hands it back to the attendant, and then he says, this is fulfilled today in your hearing. Now, in my mind, I can't get over, I know Jesus wasn't like arrogant, uh, but I can't, like I'm trying to hear his voice when he says that. Like, can you imagine somebody coming reading the Bible to you and going, by the way, that's me. And drops the scroll and walks off. Like, I don't know how, like, what's his tone? This is phenomenal. Um, and they're all like, isn't that Joseph's kid? The carpenter guy? And then you get kinda, you know, then you gotta get into that whole thing. Um, but I mean, uh, this is amazing. 
And here, straight from Isaiah 61, Jesus is, he is, he is declaring this good news. Jesus is announcing what Isaiah prophesied over and over and over again. But he's saying, I am fulfilling what Isaiah told you about. The kingdom of God is here. And, and in, in Luke's order, this is what he, he does this probably before he delivers the full Sermon on the Mount. He's proclaiming the gospel. The term gospel, uh, evangelion, means good news. But what's interesting is the gospel carries a lot of connotations of a military term. When you would, when you would pronounce evangelion, they would send a messenger from the battle the battle would be completed, and the messenger would run back to the city or to the leaders of the city, uh, to the people, and would, and would declare either defeat, if the messenger made it back, if he didn't make it back, you could assume they lost, or evangelion, good news. We won. The battle is over. The enemy is defeated. So here Jesus is declaring what Isaiah prophesied, good news to the blessed. So what does that mean? What does it mean? What does blessed mean? Um, this list has been given the nickname or uh, title, I guess, the Beatitudes. Beatitudes simply means blessing, the blessings. Uh, it, we'll get to this later, but it does not mean the Beatitudes um, in any way, shape, or form. Okay? We'll get to that in a minute, but... Um, variations of this term, it's, it, of this word, it often means blessed, and we use that a lot, and I don't know, I mean, I feel like we, we all kind of know what it means until we have to define it, and then we're like, well, you know, and, if we, and then Luke uses the opposite of it, the antonym, cursed, and so we can kind of get, well, to be blessed is not cursed. Um, some of the other meanings here, happy, blessed, joyful, uh, what's hard for me, uh, in texting with my friends this morning, one of my pastor friends is, is preaching on uh, that God actually does want us to be joyful and happy. And I'm like, oh, okay. Because I'm preaching on the blessing of those who mourn. Uh, and, and, I, and I'm a four, take, do with that what you will. Uh, and so I often see like the absolute worst case scenario. And then I'm like, see, we're not there. <laughs> So Jesus is actually delivering joyful news, but the pathway there is different than what we often think. So we, the, the, we use the terms happy or joyful uh, in terms of blessed. Um, and I think oftentimes we use those in our world and we've got to examine, well, what does that mean? Uh, for me, I think the best definition of blessed or the one that makes the most sense to me is we kind of use this at the conclusion of, of our worship services. We talk about God's presence being his blessing, his hand being on us, his presence being given to those in, listed here. And his presence is not often associated always with present day success or gain but that's not to say that his blessing is not, stay with me here, a present in the present, okay? There is joy and gain to be had from knowing a future promise will be fulfilled. God's hand, his blessing is a promise of future certainty, future hope, redemption, resurrection, justice. So whatever you might be facing today, there is a present hope 
that the future will see redemption. Uh, some have looked at this list as a set of virtues to be pursued, ideals that we should live up to, um, but we'll ultimately have to settle for something else in reality, right? Well, we should pursue these, but we gotta settle for something else uh, to be realistic. Glenn Stassen notes a distinction. He's the author, he's been one of my primary resources here. He's an, a, a former seminary professor. Uh, he notes a distinction in, in how we view this list when it comes to idealism. And listen to this distinction. Is Jesus saying here, joyful are those who are poor and humble before God because being poor and humbled makes them virtuous so that they will get the reward that virtuous people deserve? Or, hint, it's the second one, or is Jesus saying joyful are those who are poor and humble before God because God is gracious and God is acting to deliver the poor and the humble. And there's a huge difference in how we see that. He goes on to say this, idealism speaks to people who are not what the ideals urge. But it promises that if, if we live by these ideals, we will get the rewards. But the Beatitudes are not like that. They speak to disciples who are already being made participants in the presence of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. For those who follow Jesus, we already know at least a taste of being saddened or criticized or peacemakers and so on. This list does not promise distant well-being success. It actually celebrates the reality that God is already acting to deliver us, not based on the perfection of his disciples, but on the coming of God's grace already experienced in Jesus. So here's what, this, here's what this means. This list of attributes that God is gonna give here does not put an unrealistic burden on our heads to try to fulfill, to earn or achieve this eternal reward. It is, however, the voice of the messenger, the Son of God who has come to his people, poor in spirit, mourning, tasting the desperation of this world, and proclaiming to us good news the battle is over, the enemy is defeated. Amen? So the first on the list, the poor and the humble. Matthew says poor in spirit, Luke just says poor, and I think Jesus is in fact talking to both material poor and, and a spiritual reality, the humble of heart. Both experience in this world the limitations of the kingdoms of this world, of the city of man. For the material poor, we see this over and over again in scripture, God's pursuit and God's advocacy for, for the material poor. They are often exploited, they are often oppressed, uh, we still see in our day poverty robs people of their humanity. The cycle of poverty can be excruciating. One mistake, one setback, one missed day of work can be devastating. And there's often no support system around that, no fallback. God shows his concern over and over again, even for his people. Like part of, uh, I, I had 
a friend tell me one time that uh, God's judgment came against the people in Isaiah uh, because of their idolatry and their sexual immorality. And I said, okay, yes. And as Isaiah says over and over and over and over again, their neglect of the poor and the outsider and the marginalized. It is not simply a personal morality. It is an obligation. To, God says to his people over and over again, to care for the outsider, the widow, the orphan, the sick. Um, you may read passages about how much God hates bribes. Have you ever read a passage about God hating bribes and been like, I wonder why God hates bribes? God hates bribes because people can use wealth to avoid justice, to subvert justice. In fact, this is how all the other gods were placated back in that day. Placated, is that the right word? Pacified, pacified is a better word. Um, if you had wealth and material goods, you could offer a greater offering to the gods and, and get away with your injustice. It is, a, it is a perversion and a distortion of righteousness and justice, and it still works this way today. Now, this doesn't suggest that, that people in poverty are automatically virtuous, but it does show that God's heart for those who are disenfranchised and oppressed is, is evident in this world. People whose hope does not rest uh, in a God for the powerful, but whose hope rests in a God that somehow, some way, will see those who are often unseen and calls his people to do the same, the persecuted, the outsider, the widow, and the orphan. The promise is also for the humble and lowly of heart. Those who may or may not be uh, in a desperate uh, situation materially, but, span, but stand in spiritual desperation, a painful self-awareness that recognizes that their only hope is that somehow, some way, God will be a gracious God who, for, who could forgive their sin and reconcile them. Not those who justify sin or those who qualify their sin, or nor those who are just simply self-pity, but those who have a self-awareness of the depth of my spiritual poverty. And for those who are in spiritual and material poverty, who have seen through any false hopes of the city of man, the reign of God is glorious news. God brings his presence, hopeful joy, and what I love about this, but I too often forfeit, uh, if I'm honest, the promise of God's kingdom here is not one day. It's present tense. Theirs is the kingdom of God. It is ours. It's already here. Not in full, but definitely in part. When we are moved in 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 our spiritual or material poverty to a dependence on God for our hope and our joy and our sustenance, what more could the kingdom of God be than a deep abiding and need? When you read through the gospel accounts, something that's interesting to do, notice who it is that receives Jesus and who it is that rejects him or walks away. Who receives Jesus is not the ones often with status or with potential power or influence. They are mostly very sus of Jesus. 
I didn't avoid it. I just went right into it. Uh, they, are, are, they look at him with incredible cynicism and skepticism that he may be after their power. Um, some are just looking for a new leader of the rebellion. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, they look at him and they go, hey, you should be king. And then they follow him across the other side of the lake and they say, hey, do that food thing again. We'd like a little bit more. But people like this often leave Jesus when something better comes along or he doesn't fulfill their Christmas wish list. But it's the desperate, the sick, the lowly, the humble of heart who see and hear Jesus and say to him, where else would we go? You have the words of life. The next is blessed are those who mourn. So we have blessed are those, joyful are those, happy are those who are spiritually and or materially poor when they experience the kingdom of heaven and its reality. Blessed are those who mourn. A poverty of spirit is aware of the brokenness in our own hearts, but is also moved by the brokenness of the world around them. And this word, to mourn, is not simply to acknowledge, yeah, the world's broken, it's messed up, it's bad, but it actually carries with it a connotation of being moved to the point of response. Now, that doesn't mean that we become, we are moved to the point of we become the saviors, but we are grieved to the point of response. Tears, prayers, act, uh, advocacy, compassion, repentance. This all demonstrates the depth of mourning and the depth of grieving, that it actually moves us to respond. Mourners aren't looking to assuage their own guilt by trying to do more, more good than they've done bad. Mourners aren't exploitive or manipulative, practicing justice or charity for personal glory or fame. And certainly mourners are not indifferent to the suffering of the world around us, looking at the world and saying, hey, you know what? It's messed up, but what are you going to do? It's not my problem. Those who grieve and mourn aren't just mad when their lives are inconvenienced. They grieve at the way the world is, uh, that, the, that the fact that the world is not the way it should be, and that I am not the way I should be. And God gives this a name, a proper grief and mourning, and he calls it lament. Lament is when we see pain, tragedy, violence, sinfulness, injustice, etc., in the world that we experience, that others experience, and we call God to action. We express to God, this is not how the world should be, and we call on him to make it right. How long, O oh Lord? God's promise that we see in Isaiah when the, when, uh, when the king comes, when the reign of God comes, is that he would bind up the brokenhearted and comfort those who mourn, turning our mourning into, turning our ashes into beauty. And this gets tricky God's, morning, uh, God's comfort actually moves us toward continued faithfulness and trust. I'm going I'm to pause here for a second because there's a lot to unpack with this one. I think there's a way in which we need to practice mourning, um, and we need to be aware of it, to practice mourning well. And, and this could be a full sermon, but I promise it's not going to be. All right? Everybody need a deep breath? It's all right. I... All right? Do I need to adjust the thermostat to... Herwick mode? No? Okay. 
All right. Job. Chronologically, Job is the first book in the Bible. All right. It's the first one written. Um, Job reveals, right off the bat, the first thing that we hear chronologically in Scripture, Job reveals a couple of things uh, about God and about the world we live in. First, I believe that Job reveals that God is a fit judge. He is fit to judge the human heart. What's the accusation against God in the book of Job? Anybody know? You don't know the heart of your servant. The only reason he serves you, the only reason he is following you is because you have blessed him. You have given him material prosperity. And so when the worst day imaginable in the history of the world, save one, happens to Job and even his own wife, the only one left, sorry, don't move, uh, the only one left says, curse God and die. And Job says, can we receive good? I'm going to throw this. Where's Joel? Is this me or is this? All right. Can I move to this one? I'll stop moving so much. Is that better? Tap it. I thought I wasn't supposed to tap it. It's everything I learned in high school. All right. Uh, so, um, Okay, so Job's wife says, curse God and die. And Job says, can we receive good from God and not bad? And in all of this, Job did not sin. And so what is proven there is God knew the heart of his servant. God knows the hearts of his people. But the other thing that we learn with Job is that justice and the way that the world works is not always the way that we think it should. The world is incredibly complicated. It's nuanced. And when Job's friends come to comfort him, they tell him, a plus B equals C. Obviously, there's some sin here. This doesn't just happen. You did something. You're not repentant of something. You're not doing something right. And Job responds, and he's like, search me. Like, I, 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 if I knew what it was, I would repent. And then the accusations go deeper. And then in chapter 38, which I think is an incredibly hopeful chapter in Scripture, God sits Job down and explains to him, you are from us. Your perspective is limited. You don't know how the world works. Me, you ask? Here's what I do. I have set the boundaries for the waters, and I tell them that they can go this far and no further. Have you done that? I know where the storehouses to keep the snow are. I tell every thunderbolt and light, what is it, every thunderbolt where it should go. And then you get to 39, and, and he says, I, I, uh, I control mountain goats, and I, when they give birth, <laughs> like, in my mind, I'm seeing Job go, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> right. They give birth on the side of a mountain. I did that. And I help them care for their young. Your perspective is limited. My perspective is vast. To mourn properly is to grieve the evil things in the world, to call God to hear and listen. It is to bring our complaints before God when we see something we don't like, when we encounter injustice, wickedness, senseless violence. But it also trusts that God will hear the crying out of his people. There's two ways that I think are toxic to those who mourn. 
The first is when we're told not to. That God doesn't want us to cry. That we use our coffee mug sayings that are true, but can often shortcut the process. Hey, God's in charge. He brought you to it. He's going to bring you through it. Um, God's got this. These things are true, okay? I believe that they are true. But we also don't have a God that's just indifferent. We have a God that also mourns and grieves and hates the wickedness of the world. Brene Brown uh, tells the story of when she was young and in Catholic school and uh, one of her classmates died tragically um, in elementary school. And she, the priest, in the effort to comfort the class, said, it's important that we don't cry. God doesn't want us to cry. God wants us to be strong. And when she came home, her mom said, I think it's okay if you cry. I think God cries at stuff like this. This is huge in how we see God. This is huge. How do we see God when we mourn? Do we see a God who is just kind of stoic and wants us to soldier on and let the dead bury the dead? Or do we see a God who is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, a God who mourns, a man of sorrows? One of my favorite, easiest verse in all of scripture to memorize is one of my favorite stories when Jesus knew he would raise his friend from the dead and yet when he walks into town and encounters the tears of the sisters of Lazarus, Jesus wept. Here's the thing, when we don't mourn we don't, and we don't grieve the brokenness of the world, we run the risk of forfeiting the comfort of God. Another way that I think our mourning uh, is, is uh, toxic is when we threaten God with our belief. Either arrange the world in the way that I think it should go or I will stop believing in you. Now, listen, in the midst of hurt and pain, everyone is going to give and receive some bad advice, okay? I don't think, I think God is extreme, I hope God is extremely gracious with our immediate responses. Uh, and I'm not talking about our reactions in time of immediate suffering. I think God is certainly gracious and patient with the wounded. I mean, that is the story of scripture, but I'm talking about here a resolve and bitterness that essentially demands that God function as we, as we see fit or else. And that's a very limited view of God and often a very elevated view of ourselves. When we say and really begin to embrace things like, I can't believe in God when there's so much suffering in the world, that does not change in any way, shape, or form the amount of suffering in the world. It simply is an attempt to kind of assuage our own guilt and we remove any hope of redemption. And for many, for a lot of people, this is the only response that can be surmised if they've been raised or taught with a, you shouldn't cry because God doesn't want you to cry. Those who mourn, hear me, hear me. Cry out to God. Express your grief, 
your anger, your hurt, your questions. I mean, shoot, I've said this before, David is elaborate in what he wants God to do to his enemies. <laughs> but he brings that before God. That's the problem. He does not take it into his own hands. He trusts God with vengeance and leaves it in his hands. When we say and cry out to God, this is the way the world is and I don't like it. This is when we can be confronted with the fact that we have a God who does, in fact, care. Who does hear the cries of his people and who will comfort through his presence and through the presence of his people. Some, sometimes. <laughs> Oftentimes. Not all of his people. We're a messed up lot. We got 6,000 years strong on that. But he will also comfort. All right. So that's two, here's three, we're not going to get to four. Blessed are the meek. Me, meek, I got to get over this because it rhymes and I can't stand it, but meekness does not equal weakness, okay? Don't put that on a t-shirt. It, th those are not synonymous. Meekness is a sense of surrender and actually comes from a position of incredible strength. To be meek is to endure suffering and not respond in self-pity or self-loathing, nor in retaliation or vengeance, but with faithfulness and trust. That's, that's strength. Um, this is incredibly hard, especially when hatred is very, very, very easily justifiable. I, I don't know of a better example of this than um, Howard Thurman, who was an incredible civil rights leader in the 40s and 50s. He was actually a, a spiritual mentor to Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and Chapter four in his book, Jesus in the uh, Jesus in uh, the Jesus in the, uh, the Disinherited. Um, chapter four, written in 1949, he gives this illustration, and he's talking about hatred, and how easily justifiable hatred is. This is what he says. He said, suppose you're one of you're one of five children in a family, and it happened again and again. If there was enough, if there was just enough for four children in any given circumstance. You were the child who had to do without. If there was money for four pairs of shoes, but five pairs of shoes were needed, it was you who did without shoes. If there were five pieces of cake on the plate, four healthy slices and one small piece, you were given the small piece. At first, when this happened, you overlook it because you thought that your sisters and your brothers, each in their own turn, would have to endure the same experience, but they did not. When you complained quietly to the brother who was closest to you in understanding, he thought you were being disloyal to your mother and father to say such a thing. In a moment of self-righteous anger, you spoke, speak out to your father about it, and your father put you on the carpet so severely that you decided never to mention it again. But you kept on watching as the discrimination continued. And at night, when the lights were out, you were safely tucked away in bed. 
you'd reach down into the quiet places of your little heart and lift it out your bundle of hates and resentments growing out of the family situation. And you go through each of them gently, one by one, in the darkness, you mutter to yourself, they can keep me from talking about it, but they can't keep me from resenting. I hate them for what they are doing to me. And no one can prevent me there. And hatred becomes a source of validation. It gives you a sense of significance that you can fling defiantly into the teeth of your family's estimation of you. He goes on then, it's clear then that for the socially weak, hatred seems to serve a creative purpose. It may be judged harshly by impersonal ethical standards, but as long as the weak see it and being inextricably involved in the complicated technique of survival with dignity, it cannot be easily dislodged. And Jesus understood this. Jesus flies in the face of hatred as, as independence and justification by telling people to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the reason is because hatred, once it's released, knows no boundaries. Hatred does not set limitations on its destruction. It may start with mom and dad, make its way to brothers and sisters, and eventually will be your own soul. Many of us, me, I have not faced such opportunity for resentment. Sometimes indifference can masquerade as love. Uh, I know people who love to quote Martin Luther King on his birthday. Love, that's the way, that's the way. But what if we dug in and saw just how justified he would be to actually hate? And yet he resisted hate with every fiber of his being and was still beaten, attacked by dogs, and eventually killed. Many of us will not know that kind of resentment. Some of us may. The good news for those who are able to endure such wickedness and evil and injustice and surrender even still, the promise of God is the full inheritance of the earth. The meek surrender an earthly kingdom now, but God's word of hope, it's not his reward, but his active deliverance is that the full earth will be yours. Meekness endures suffering, faces it, sees it, doesn't deny it, and yet responding to God with faithfulness and trust that he is our great defender. I'm going to tell you right now, people don't like a God who judges. I am all for a God who judges. I'm all for it because justice will be served. The evil and wickedness in this world will be paid for. In this life or the next. And I, I say that with some knees trembling. I do believe that the hereafter will be a recompense. All right, we're going to pause there. We'll get back at it next week. Um, here's your practice for this week. 
last week we talked about the promise of God, the promise of the reign of God with the seven characteristics. His presence, salvation and redemption, peace, healing, joy, a return to God, a repentance and return to God, and then justice. So this week, this is what I want you to do. Think on this list that God gives, the Beatitudes. Think on these blessings. And I don't think this is a list where you go, am I in or am I out? Here's what I want you to do. Keeping those thoughts in mind, those attributes, and some of them are, are kind of intuitive, we know, you don't have to go through the list of all seven, but think on those attributes of what the reign of God is to deliver here. And I want you to think on this list and read through it, especially, especially if you've heard this your whole life. And I want you to think, how is this good news? How is this blessedness? And not like, how is this good news? I realize that could be misinterpreted. But how is this good news? How is this good news to me? How is this good news to the world? Cool? All right, let's pray. Jesus, none of this works out the way that we think it should. And I think one day it will. But the confession of my own heart is I, I want that now. God, I don't think we experience this good news and this hope and are not challenged and transformed by it. So I pray that this week, for those whose trust is in you, who having encountered a gracious and good and compassionate Savior, being aware of our own sin, being aware of the sins of the world and encountering this, that, that we would actually hear this as good news in our hurts, in our sorrows, in all of the weights, and that that, that begins to work on us. This is not an idealistic thing that we are called to achieve. This is a transformation and a rescue that you are already at work doing in and through your people. So I pray we would hear that. And uh, I pray for those that are here this morning in, in whatever capacity, whose hearts have been hardened or who have experienced the full weight of, of the angst and bitterness and injustice of this world, who have a really hard time hearing this as good news, May your voice be loud. This is our hope. This is not a hustle. This is not an opiate for the masses. This is the reign in the kingdom of God that will never fail and will be established on earth as it is in heaven. May we hope in that one day. In Jesus' name, amen. building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.